The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live. This is where we take a closer look at rising changemakers, young people who have caught our eye from Capitol Hill to TV, film, and everywhere in between. I'm Marilis Hernandez, a national reporter here at the Washington Post. Tomorrow marks five years since the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that claimed the lives of 17 people. I am joined today by Delaney Tarr, one of the co-founders of March for Our Lives, which was born out of that tragedy at her high school. Delaney, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Now, before we begin, I did want to ask you, how are you doing today and, and what's going through your head now that you know tomorrow is the five-year anniversary? I mean, the days leading up to the anniversary are always odd because I never really know how I'm going to feel. It changes a little bit every year, of course, because, you know, every year is just a little different. So, I mean, I'm hanging in there as best as someone can, but it's it's a sensitive time for sure. And I mean, are there specific thoughts that you're having, things that you're thinking about? I mean, I, I really reflect a lot on you know the shooting itself the time after the shooting the march for our lives i reflect on it all year round that's not a really a thought that goes away for me but it becomes ever present the closer that we get to that date so i I've, I've been thinking a lot about kind of what we did and i mean what happened and then what we did in the aftermath and how i feel about it how it's impacted me um, how i've grieved and how i've struggled to grieve so it's it's a lot of just constantly pondering from driving and walking around, sitting, eating dinner, like everything that I'm doing, I'm thinking about it in some capacity, um, really trying to reflect and understand where I'm at now. Well, you recently wrote a little bit about, you know, this process that you're undergoing of trying to understand how your life has changed since the tragedy in Parkland. What have you learned uh, from this reflection about, you know, that tragedy and how it has sort of impacted you? I mean, what haven't I learned? It's it's interesting to have something so transformational happen at an age where you're, you know, already having a transformational experience. I was incredibly vulnerable, all of us were. And being able to understand that not only did that change my development into adulthood, it's been carried with me this entire time. So I've really, I've learned obviously great things about organizing and understanding the political landscape and understanding the power of collective change but I've also learned the ways that organizing in times of grief and trauma and tragedy can kind of mess you up for a really long time, which is part of what my article touches on. Um, I've learned that a lot of the things that I once considered uplifting to hear now kind of fill me with discomfort and sometimes a little bit of sadness tinged with anger. Um, and that can be a really complicated feeling, like the things that people say to us, to people who did organize or who still organize. So it's definitely every every aspect of it. I think my feelings have changed a little and I know that they'll keep changing as the years go on. 
Well, we're going to get into that some more, but I want to talk about a specific term that you used in, in your you know recent piece, your you know well-reported recent piece, uh, trauma-battered brain. Uh, can you unpack that for us? What does that mean to you? What did you mean when you used it? Yeah, um, so something that I think anybody who's experienced a trauma in any capacity knows, and that number increases every day, is that trauma does kind of fundamentally change your brain. Now, I'm no scientist, um, but I have read books on trauma to try and figure out what was going on with my head, and it, it kind of rewires things. So yeah, battered is a bit of a dramatic word, but it's kind of the most accurate word to talk about trauma. And in those early months and years, it was a very present sort of um, lots of flashbacks, lots of moments where you would panic if you were in a crowded room or if you heard a loud bang, it would kind of send you into a spiral. And like that was a very big experience for me. And that was an understanding that my brain was quite literally battered by trauma. But there was also the, well, once again, not a mental health professional, but what I would consider the kind of repeat traumas of having to relive that moment and relive those moments over and over and over again on a national stage. That was our power, was that we were able to talk so clearly and concisely about the most traumatic moment of our lives, but that was also kind of the harm that we were doing to ourselves without even knowing. And it was that repeat hit after hit of getting up there on a stage and recounting to a bunch of strangers this thing that I had learned how to distance myself from so that I could recount it to strangers. And that's an interesting aspect of the trauma is that I, I would say on some level, I know for myself, I feel like I kind of just re-traumatized myself over and over and over again. And I developed new traumas from all of the work and the pain that I was putting myself through. And I think that not only halted my recovery or my grieving process, it created entirely new processes that I'm still dealing with. Well, we're going to talk and get some more into that tension right now that you've transitioned from activism to, to journalism now. But before we get there, I want to start, you know, where does the movement stand today? You and your, your co-founders organized what was the largest single day of protests against gun violence in this country in U.S. history, right? So where, does, where do you see the movement is today? I think the movement is in a really interesting place. I think it's in a great place. First off, I'm I'm very I admire everyone who's out there still doing the work. Um, yes, I did step away into reporting, which has always been a passion of mine. But I don't know if we ever really understood how we were going to have longevity. That was a big concern for us, but it was also once again a symptom of trauma can't really look into the future at all. So we didn't have the ability to say, where will we be five years from now? Our goal, of course, was to not have to exist five years from now. And unfortunately, we're not there yet because that's not how change happens. Change has to happen, you know, with a constant fight and a constant push. But we really ended up, I mean, in some, in some ways, we kind of encouraged and inspired these young people to continue doing the work. So a lot of my peers went off to college. A lot of them are pursuing careers in politics, but even more are not pursuing careers in politics. And still we're seeing high schoolers and people much younger than us take on the charge and get involved and join, you know, March for Our Lives National or start a local chapter or really just get involved in any capacity. And that's really where I think the movement has moved is having longevity via all of these other people who have gotten involved. I mean, if you look at the people who are gonna be out there doing the work every single day for the March for Our Lives, the majority of them aren't from Parkland and that's a good thing. That adds scope, that adds perspective and that adds a lifespan that I don't know the March for Our Lives would have had if it had just been us the entire time. 
In talking about the lifespan of a tragedy, uh, what happens to communities after the cameras leave town, after the reporters, you know, go home uh, back to their their lives? What, what did the rest of the country not see about the grieving process that follows? I mean, the community has to keep existing. And that's something that obviously, for obvious reasons, out of sight, out of mind. People don't see what's going on in Parkland after, you know, the couple of months of coverage that we got because we did get a lot more coverage than any other community really did. There were cameras there for a very long time, but once they left, we had to adjust to to the reality of not having the cameras around, to the reality of our grief no longer being as interesting to people, as engaging to people, as empowering. It was just grief then. Um, and that's a hard thing to adjust to. And especially as you look years and years out, people are in different places emotionally and mentally. And not everyone's on the same page all the time. Some people still struggle to move past the school, to drive past the school at all, but other people do it every single day. So it's nonlinear. Nobody's going to be in the exact same place, but there is a community understanding. However, of course, it's been five years, so the community's changed too. For example, a lot of us graduated and moved away. I know a lot of people who left the area to move somewhere else in the country just because it was too hard to stay there. So you're seeing this shift in the actual population of people who were there. Um, so that's also a different component too. And I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to continue living in this place that is so linked to tragedy. It's why a lot of us were, I think, trying so hard to get away from it and go somewhere else. But there is a comfort in it as well, in that you're the only people who can understand it. It's not going to be so much of a spectacle if you talk about the shooting. People are just going to kind of understand. You don't have to explain yourself as much. You can exist more naturally, but that natural existence comes with an inherent pain. So I've, I've covered, unfortunately, many of these mass shootings, including the most recent one in, in Uvalde, uh, Texas, last May. I'm sure that those headlines must have been, you know, triggering. And I'm just wondering, what can you tell us? What is it like, you know, to hear about every sort of subsequent shooting, that school shooting specifically, that takes place? And, and where does your mind go when you hear about these things? It's devastating every time you get that notification. I know it's devastating for everyone. Nobody's happy to hear that news. It's heartbreaking, especially when it's children as young as the children from Uvalde. So, I mean, that one specifically, that really was hard. And it was especially hard because you're grappling with all these horrible things that you're seeing and you're grappling with seeing the stories of these children who were murdered and the families of the children who were murdered. And it's just this spiral that I know myself and some of my friends were doing where we're constantly, we're thinking about it and we can't stop engaging with it, even though we know the only thing that we can do in this moment is try to protect ourselves, which is sad, but sometimes it's not the best for a school shooting victim to really, really kind of spiral into this, staring at this content for hours and hours and hours and hours about this tragedy. Um, and it's never stopped being devastating. I mean, I something that I reflect on a lot is kind of the first shooting that happened after the Parkland shooting, um, when we had, you know, brave, bravely and boldly declared that we were going to stop gun violence. And we really believed that this would be the last shooting. Naivete, brazen confidence, um, and hope really had us saying that out loud to everyone. And then another shooting happened. And we were in school when we found out about it. And I remember that I actually 
had to run out into the hallway, collapse on the ground. One of the service dogs, because the service dogs were still there, that's how soon after it was, um, came up and like nuzzled against me. And I just have such a distinct memory of that because that was the first moment that we had to really understand the fact that this fight was gonna take a lot longer. And while this fight took so long, we were gonna keep seeing tragedies and it was just gonna keep breaking us apart because you feel helpless you feel failure, even though it's not your fault. And it's just, it is it is devastating is the best word to describe it. Um, so it never gets easier to deal with, but the Uvalde shooting definitely hit really hard for a lot of us, just seeing you know, how young the children were, seeing the scope of it, the size of it, and then all of the comparisons to Sandy Hook never really help. Um, so it was a really hard one. And of course, I got lots of media attention then, and I was like, oh, I haven't seen these people in years. I haven't heard from these people in years and now I'm getting cold called by news stations while I'm still sleeping, asking me for a last minute interview and it felt a little bit disingenuous. I'm gonna talk about that. What do you, what do you mean disingenuous? What, what about it? You explain that a little bit. Yeah, um, it's something I touch on in my Teen Vogue article, but it's that feeling of being left behind and a big concern of mine as I've reflected over the years is being a talking head and I think that there was, a, we, we were close to it. We were getting close to being talking heads. And I know that when I get those calls, a lot of the times, and, and I can tell because once again, practicing journalist, I understand the, the language of asking for an interview. So I get it, but I can also tell when it's, they're looking for somebody who experienced gun violence to just talk about it, to talk about how bad this is and to just be mad. And I've never felt that to be what I want. From the field and that's never been the the thing that's been most effective that's felt most effective and it honestly is kind of frustrating because these were people who wouldn't cover the daily work or who wouldn't cover the less exciting moments or who wouldn't really check in after they parachuted into communities and and got their interview and left and i think that that lack of commitment which once again i get it i'm a journalist i know that the news cycle works incredibly rapidly, but that lack of commitment and then just bouncing back in and saying, we need we need to think of somebody who's experienced this so they can give us a quote. And it's always gonna be one of our numbers that they pull up. And I've had some great interviews that happened around that time who really treated the situation with care. They treated the interview with care and they produced really great work. And they were people that I already kind of trusted to do that coverage. But just for every outlet that did that great coverage, I knew that there were outlets that I didn't necessarily have the best feeling about, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Uh, you know, you said that talking about and being angry about the gun violence didn't feel very productive to you, but what, what do you think were sort of the productive moments and the things that you could do that were, you know, successful as part of March of Our Lives? I mean, don't get me wrong, talking is my favorite pastime. Talking is an incredibly productive <laughs> thing. I think it's the specific type of talking in those interviews that comes off as being like, are you mad about this? And then you kind of have to go, yeah. And they're like, are you sad about this? And you have to say, yeah, this is horrible. Did you need me to say that? <laughs> I feel like that's pretty well known. And it's also, you know, can you recount how traumatic it was for you? And that is not what I'm here to do. But talking, being angry, that was always a strength of ours with March for Our Lives is that we were incredibly radical in our emotions and, and honest with our anger. And that really spoke to a lot of people. Clearly it spoke to a lot of people. So. Don't get me wrong, all about talking, the speeches, the rallies, and those galvanized people, but clearly the speeches and the rallies were not the thing that actually got people to stick with it and do the work. And that was where we got into 
local organizing, lobbying, get out the vote efforts. I mean, we registered tons of people to vote. And by we, I do mean we were out there with clipboards and random communities registering people to vote. And that was the work that we did that I really feel was more productive, engaging with communities across the country, especially neglected communities and marginalized communities and really being boots on the ground. That was the work that created the coalitions that we had that allowed us to continue existing, that allowed us to have comprehensive policy that wouldn't be harmful to some communities. So yes, talking and being angry is valuable in the right time and place and when, you know, strategically done, but the real work, the work that doesn't get the attention is going to be the work that creates that longevity and that creates that success. Well, and talking about that label, youth activists, which you go into again in that piece, I, I mean, do you think that younger activists are taken more seriously because of the work that you all did? Ooh, um, it's complicated, I would say. I, I mean, youth activist is the fact that it's a phrase alone is something that really speaks to the rise in prominence of young people getting involved. But I think just as much as youth activists are going to be given more time and space to share their platforms, they're going to be tokenized. Um, they're going to be capitalized on, they're going to be commercialized. And it's kind of that thing, the moment that it becomes this marketable category, you see a bunch of people jumping on it and being like, okay, well, I wanna, either I want to be a youth activist or I want to take a youth activist and use them to my own benefit. Um, that's not to say every time that, you know, a company collaborates with youth activists, it's a bad thing. But I do think the creation of the phrase kind of makes it easier to peg this just entire generation and be like, well, youth activists, um, without understanding that not everyone wants to be labeled that, first of all. I didn't even label myself an activist, and then I started getting called one, and I didn't even understand what that meant at first. And even still, I don't necessarily know that activism was the word that I felt comfortable with, because it didn't necessarily connotate advocacy, nor did it connotate um, organizing. It was just kind of this nebulous other thing that you were like, what? what is activism in this scenario? Is it organizing? Is it advocacy? Is it a combination? Or is it this entirely new thing? Um, which is why I kind of got into the youth activism industrial complex, where I think that there is this, this very clear desire to turn it into a profit motive and to, and to turn these, these teenagers who are idealistic and who want to create change into celebrities, into spokespeople, into brand ambassadors and that kind of thing. Well, so is there, is there a right way? Is there a right term for, you know, the, the activated young people around us who are wanting to get involved in everything from gun violence to, you know, climate change to, to other issues in their community? What, what's the right way we need to be talking about, you know, group of people want to be, you know, in, in the trenches doing the work? I mean, there are, I, I mean, when I'm talking about youth activism, my issues with it, I am speaking for myself. Um, I actually have quite a few friends who do like the term activist and they do claim it. And these are actually people who have been working in their communities for a lot longer than I worked with March for Our Lives. They've been doing it for like seven, eight, nine years. And if they want to call themselves activists, then hell yeah, they're activists. That's awesome. But I think for young people, it's important to, to kind of question and interrogate if you're starting to get involved. Are you an activist just because you care about something? I don't know. I'm not going to decide. I'm not going to be, you know, the gatekeeper of what activism is. But is it activism to have an opinion? Are you organizing? Could you be an organizer? Are you speaking out? Is it advocacy? And I think that it's kind of whatever anyone's comfortable with, sure. But I think the fact that youth activist was a term that was thrust upon us 
that we did not ask for necessarily that became the way to brand us and the way to be inspired by us without having to actually do the work they're doing the work not us um without them having to do the work i think that was the the biggest issue with it is that the moment that we became youth activists it became okay for everyone else to stop doing the work if that makes sense oh okay i see i see what you're saying there and thank you for clarifying that um well, what do you hope that other reporters take away from, from your experiences and, and understand the next time they're called to respond to one of these horrible uh, situations? Yeah, uh, of course, I did engage with so, so, so many media outlets, especially in those first months after the shooting. Um, I honestly could not count how many interviews I did. So I kind of dealt with the entire scope of reporting from the very best people who are really great, who I still contact and I'm in touch with today, um, and then people who I really don't have fond memories of. Um, I think some big takeaways. Parachute journalism is well known within, I mean, you learn it in journalism school, you learn it if you do any sort of reporting, I would hope. But there was a lot of parachute journalism, just people from any number of outlets appearing in our community like two days after the shooting getting some photos, an interview, and then we would never hear from them again. And of course the interview, you know, it's, can you talk about how sad you are? Can you tell us about what it was like to be in the building during the shooting? I mean, sometimes they would talk to kids who were in the building, but like, can you tell us about your dead friends? That is deeply inappropriate, first of all, <laughs> but it's also, are you engaging with sensitivity? Are you understanding what it's like to talk to a vulnerable source? And are you actually committed to this story beyond the five minutes that it's going to take for you to get a, like a snappy quote and a photo? So that's a, a harder job for sure. Um, similarly, I think that there's a lot of nuance to mass tragedy reporting and gun violence reporting in particular, um, and really understanding how to navigate those conversations. Like I said, sensitive and vulnerable subjects. Um, we had a lot of reporters who really tried to, um, how best do I say this, walk all over us is the only way I can describe it. And because we were young, they would try to push us beyond a boundary. And sometimes it's best to accept a boundary. If we say, no, you cannot be in this room right now. We are teenagers, we need to have a private meeting. Or no, you can't take a photo of my prom dress, which might sound silly, and they do it anyways, that's a boundary violated. So I think a difference that I have is that sometimes I stop pushing as a journalist because I want to not only preserve those relationships, but respect my source in a way that I don't necessarily know I was always respected, especially as a traumatized, grieving 17-year-old girl. And how much of that experience, and we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I do want to get this in, um, in those relationships that did work, how much was the reporter giving you sort of back some agency, back some control, a part of the, the better relationships? Absolutely, I would say that agency and control was a part of it. Um, but also, I mean, they weren't, I, I, I don't want a reporter to kind of acquiesce to a source too much. That's not great journalism, you know? So they would push back if they needed to. But I think that a, a good reporter does, you know, let their source have a voice if their source is vulnerable, marginalized. You give them this platform to speak on, but you make sure that you're pushing back on what they're saying. And I think that that combination of making sure that they feel empowered to say what they want to say, especially if this is a historically unheard from group, um, while doing your due diligence as a journalist, it's a hard balance. But I think being able to do both of those was what made me really respect those reporters. And of course, you know, the art of the follow up and really staying in touch long term. That's incredible. Just thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this stuff. And I think we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Delaney, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for this important 
and difficult conversation. Best of luck to you. I'll be watching uh, your reporting as, as you continue on in your career. Just good luck. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it. Take good care. Next, uh, we are excited. Stay with us because we have another edition of our next roundtable where we're going to hear from some reporters in our newsroom. This doesn't happen all that often. Uh, joining me now to continue the conversation about mass shootings are Sylvia Fosterfrau and John Woodward Cox. John and Sylvia, welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, John, I'm going to start with you because I think you have a piece coming out, if I'm not mistaken, soon or tomorrow uh, about the anniversary of uh, of Parkland. And I wanted to uh, sort of, if you could give us a preview, what are you looking to address in that piece? Sure. So um, I guess really exactly five years ago after the, the Parkland shooting, we um, began to put together this database of school shootings that goes all the way back to Columbine. And uh, Stephen Rich and I have maintained that over the last five years. And so with the fifth anniversary coming of the shooting, we decided to uh, kind of take a moment and put together a list of um, the biggest lessons that we've learned over the last five years. So, uh, you know, we've spent so much time doing this as you have as well. And you just uh, come to see patterns in, in these events over and over and over again, like Delaney with on the media side, right? We also see patterns and what causes these things and what can prevent them. So that's really kind of the central idea of the piece is that this can often feel like a hopeless issue uh, and it feels endless. But in fact, we know that most school shootings are preventable. So we, we kind of get into some of that, the ways that uh, societally we could uh, prevent these things from happening. What do you see consistently among survivors, in particular in tragedies like this? Like how does, how does this trauma impact young people, which has been the focus of a lot of your work? Yeah, you know, I a lot of my work really focuses on, I think, the group that is most often overlooked, and that is really the people like Delaney, uh, the people who are not physically harmed. So when we think about school shootings, especially, or really any kind of mass shooting, we often reduce it to the number of people who died. When we think about Uvalde, we think 21. When we think of Parkland, we think 17. Uh, when we think of Sandy Hook, we think of 26. But those numbers don't begin to capture the scope of this crisis. You know, each of these, there are hundreds, if not thousands of victims who live with these events forever. And we know that uh, we can't really predict why some kids are affected and, and uh, others are not, or when they're going to be affected. But I know the trauma can be devastating and debilitating. I know children um, who went through school shootings well before Parkland, uh, kids I've reported on from 2016, who never could go back to school. They never did recover. They're still on antidepressants and antipsychotics and still dealing with a devastating trauma that will shape their lives uh, forever. Well, Sylvia, you reported extensively on the aftermath of the 2017 mass shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas. What surprised you most about how that community recovered or is recovering from that tragedy? Oh, gosh. I think, you know, what was unique about that experience was that I followed that community for so long. It was actually one of the benefits of being a local reporter. Like Delaney was talking about parachute journalism, right, where national reporters come in. And since joining the Post, I've had to be in that position where you come in and do the story and then you leave or there's an another tragedy. But as a local reporter, I really stayed with that community. And you really just saw how long these 
how impactful and long these shootings and the trauma from them like take on a community the way that it really um destroys it and um impacts it for life i mean these people will always have kind of a before and after right from the shooting and the way that that just completely transforms your life trajectory your priorities your hobbies even physically what you're able to do if you're impacted physically um so it, it really was a, a chance to look at the longer term effects that these shootings have on a community and on families that um I think we all agree, you know, would be great if journalism could do more of. John, you've written quite a bit about the rise of mass shootings as a uniquely American crisis. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. Uh, you know, it's um, a thing that we, you know, every time we have one of these shootings, we debate, well, why do these happen? What can we do to stop them? And it, it's not that hard to know that they can be stopped because they don't happen in any other developed country. This is only a thing among developed countries. It only happens here. Uh, there are not children in England and Canada and uh, Germany and places like that who are routinely being shot to death in their schools. Uh, the difference is really that we have 400 million plus guns by some estimates. We have more guns than people and we have laws that are uh, generally inadequate at keeping those guns from falling into the hands of people who would do harm with them. So uh, it's not an impossible thing to figure out the why or why this is uniquely American. The, the question, of course, is eternally going to be is what do we do to prevent them? And that is where we get these, uh, these constant debates because we're never going to um, take all those guns off the streets, right? Even if new gun laws come along that restrict the sales of new guns, those guns will always exist. And so we have to come to terms with that and say, you know, what can we do to reduce these numbers? Because the idea of eradication of mass shootings in America is unrealistic, at least in our lifetimes. That will never happen. Uh, but there are a lot of things we could do to just reduce those numbers. And that's worth it. You know, we, we just look at this as a binary thing. It's either solved or it's broken. And we can't look at it that way because we'll, we'll never feel like we make progress otherwise. John talked about uh, the the brokenness that comes after some of these things. And, and Sylvia, you know this well, to get a little personal, you've also written about sort of the personal trauma of, of, of being targeted. Um, and that is particularly relevant now with the rise in targeted violence against particularly Asian Americans. Talk to us about your reporting and how it's illustrated sort of this experience of trauma. Yeah, well, what I was looking at is basically about how so many of these mass shootings do target vulnerable communities, not even to mention, right, gun violence itself and, and as a whole, right, and the kinds of communities it impacts. But when it's when it targets a specific community or when it is like and ends up being labeled as a hate crime, right, like intentionally um, targeting a group of people. It really the the trauma that ripples from that is not, you know, central to that local place. It's not even, you know, central to people who have gone through it before. It really impacts everyone who belongs to that group of people, right? Like when the El Paso shooting happened and the gunman drove down under this operation of an invasion theory, right? And was intentionally targeting Latinos in El Paso. Like that spread fear throughout the entire Hispanic community, right? Because you realize that you're vulnerable in this country and that there are people who are not comfortable with your place in there. And so it really has this, this large ripple effect um, for these marginalized communities. And then a lot of times, you know, when it when it is a 
community that's been kind of historically disenfranchised, it's a lot harder to get the services, right, to come out okay on the other end of it, whether it's mental health services, um, navigating like government um, funding for victims of crimes, like all of that that comes in afterwards too, there's just a lot more barriers in place to accessing it. John, I want to pivot back to sort of the, some of the things that Delaney was talking about and, and sort of young people taking up the cause to push for gun violence. What was the reaction, you think, in the aftermath to Parkland? I mean, did their age really move the needle on this cause? You know, I, I think it did. Uh, I, I remember sort of being in awe that, that very same day when I was seeing teenagers giving interviews. That was new. Like, I had never actually seen that before. We always see maybe a kid standing next to a parent. But for the first time, I remember that day, that afternoon, looking up at the screen and seeing um, survivors of an event just hours earlier out there demanding change. So, you know, the, the um, fruit of this movement, I think it's going to take a long time for us to see really dramatic sort of sweeping change, the change that everybody thought would come in the aftermath of Sandy Hook and didn't. But, you know, this summer, uh, for the first time in generations, uh, there was a, uh, or a generation rather, um, a meaningful piece of gun legislation that, that passed uh, the Senate and Republicans supported it. Many Republicans did support it. So, um, it's not a thing that we're going to see, I think, dramatic change overnight, but I don't think those sorts of significant steps would happen if not for this youth movement. And uh, certainly that group from Parkland, I think, empowered everybody since then, because I've certainly seen a lot more activism among youth since that moment. And I think they were the ones who, who certainly started it and gave permission to uh, so many others to do the same thing. Sylvia, sort of the same question, uh, youth activists, right? There were children that were also, uh, you know, injured and killed in Sutherland Springs. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on how the rise of youth activism you think has Im impacted the gun violence movement. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, after these incidents, there there's often communities that kind of rise up, right? And um, maybe it's a, a person in the community, maybe it's a group that comes together and they decide like that really sparked change, right? And they decide to want to make a difference. And it's oftentimes an opportunity for reporters to tell a more positive story, right? About people who have suddenly become civically engaged that maybe weren't before. And I, I do think a lot of um, what the youth have been able to maneuver and use well is social media, right? And being able to reach like so many people through that, through so many like kind of innovative and creative ways that older generations aren't seeing or aren't able to use and not able to kind of like just really use that as a tool for change. And so um, I think kind of across the board with Sutherland Springs and with so many other of these shootings, you see how uh, the youth are able to both in the moment, right, like capture what's going on, but then also start these larger conversations online. Pivoting back a little bit more, John, I'm in my head, I'm thinking about, you know, what you said that, you know, this is something that happens here and, and no few other places happens the way that it happens here. I, could you talk to me about how like sort of the, the rise of mass shootings still, you know, infrequent but regular in this country impacts the way we perceive the world around us and sort of the, the trauma on our collective consciousness as Americans? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and it's really not even just limited to uh, mass shootings, right? It's just the pervasiveness of gun violence. It is so embedded in our culture 
I remember this uh, study that I came across once really illustrated this point. It, it looked at um, homicides in Chicago, and it found that children who had just been in a neighborhood where a homicide occurred did worse on their test scores a week later. So they didn't have to see the shooting. They didn't have to hear it. They didn't have to know the person who was killed. They just had to know that someone in my neighborhood was shot to death. And it affected them, it affected them so intensely that a week later, they weren't doing as well in school. And I think we tend to overlook that, uh, the way that it affects all of us, right? Even if you're not living in a neighborhood where uh, someone's been shot to death, it has shaped sort of every aspect of our lives. You know, we, we think about school shootings as a thing that is statistically rare, and that is true. Uh, there is no child in this country who is likely to go through a school shooting on their campus. What they are likely to go through at some point in their um, educational career is a lockdown, an actual lockdown. We know that we looked at one school year and somewhere between four and eight million kids went through a real lockdown. And many of those kids thought they were gonna die in their schools. And we know that because they text their parents goodbye, they uh, soil themselves, they write wills in some cases saying who they want their stuff to be left to. So uh, it affects us in so many ways beyond just who is physically harmed. It is a thing that you know many of us now think when we walk into movie theaters or restaurants, how would I get out of here if somebody opened fire? And I don't know that we've even wrapped our arms around what that is going to do to us uh, decades from now and our children and, and our grandchildren. Sylvia, we're running out of time, but very quickly, uh, if you could, what, what does healing look like? Have you seen it? What does it look like in, in your work? Hmm. Um, I think a lot of healing has to do with creating a new way of living and a new way of life, starting new routines, appreciating different things. Um, a, a lot of the folks that I've kind of followed throughout time, this time, like engage in a lot more kind of hobbies and things that maybe before you kind of don't have time, don't have time for right in your daily life, um, after work and after school, like really going on nature walks, spending a lot of time with family and friends. Um, I know in Sutherland Springs, it really just brought the community even closer. And it's just like this incredibly tight knit group that has only gotten more so after that because they lean on each other and they know what each other has gone through. And I think it's um, it's kind of like what you end up valuing the most and treasuring the most, right? The support that you can get from that and the, the real value, right? That you place on human life after knowing how quickly it can be lost. And that can be a really beautiful thing to witness. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Sylvia and John, thank you both for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.